0: Welcome to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We are an evangelical free church seeking to honor God by making disciples that learn about, love like, and live like Jesus. Hey, good morning, Journey Church. Those of you that are here with us this morning, those of you who are online, those of you who will join us later on in the week, perhaps listening to the podcast etc, etc. We're so glad that you're here, that you're interested in the things of the Lord, wanting to walk with Jesus, wanting to come together with God's people, wanting to sing together and worship the Lord, and also to take a deep dive into Scripture and the the deep profound truths uh, that God has revealed to us, and and you want to walk in them. You want to see how they impact your life. I do too, and so it's a delight to begin a five-week sermon series on a a very deep, profound, uh, sort of churchy-sounding word, the word atonement, and the ideas, plural, behind atonement. Five weeks running up to Easter, where we will look at the ultimate atonement. Fascinating word. According to scholars, and actually theologian J.I. Packer, The word in the English, atonement, did not appear in the English language until 1513. And it's made up of two words. It's actually one of these words that you can actually pull it apart and go, oh, is it really that simple? Or is that sort of made up? It's not made up. It appeared in 1513 in the English language, uh, a compound word, atonement. One mint. At one mint." Yes, I made sure I did my fact-checking on that. And that word "at one mint" initially meant this: making amends and rendering of satisfaction for wrong done, wrong done that, that has brought alienation, but making amends so that the alienation is removed and the two offended parties could now be at one. It's that clear. Now, over time, and, and with uh, looking backwards and forwards in the Old Testament and New Testament, you see many words or ideas and ex- illustrations and examples where at-one-ment is being provided. And so we look back into the Hebrew uh, scriptures, the Old Testament, and it's the word kaphar, where we al- actually, a derivative of that is, is kippur. You might hear Something you recognize there, Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, Kephar. And the word in the Hebrew means to cover, to cover up with pitch. Pitch was a sealant, it was uh, a waterproofing agent, a covering. So Kephar was to cover up with pitch, pitch, or to purge, or make... Reconciliation for it also has the idea to pacify or to make propitiation. I dare you to say that. Propitiation, it's a good word, it's a good word. We lose it when we try to be so modern English, which is good for communication, but we lose some of the depth of meaning and nuance of some of these beautiful words. Propitiation, the appeasement of wrath, and all those were wound up in kafar in the Greek, in the New Testament. Catalogue, catalogue, exchange is the idea. So it takes on this new idea of, of uh, a substitution. And it actually comes out of the business of the money changers. So you're going to give me 10 ruby, rupees, and I'm going to give you $1. I don't know what the exchange rate is right now, probably not too good. But but this is, how do we make it even, Stephen? How do we equalize the debt or make up from that which is deficient. Catalogue. Uh, adjusting of a difference and also means restoration and restoring to favor. Okay? Like a multifaceted diamond, beautifully cut diamond, the word itself and the concept in Scripture is multifaceted. And we're going to take these weeks to walk around this diamond called the atonement, and we're gonna get glimpses and perspectives on what it is that God has done in time and space and history in this beautiful word called the atonement. But here's the question, why does it matter? Why does it matter? Tell you a quick story back in my youth pastoring days in South Scottsdale. A metaphysical bookstore went in across the street They're on Scottsdale Road. And those of you who know what that means, that means a, a, uh, a store to buy uh, materials for magic and witchcraft. True story, it was an occultic bookstore. And instead of picketing uh, the New Age metaphysical bookstore, I thought the next best thing would be to take them lunch. So me and Matt Balgard, my, my associate at the time, we, uh, we went to, to uh, Einstein's and uh, we knew that there might be some vegan offerings because a lot of witches are vegan, uh, at least I thought. So we took them lunch and when they saw us come in and they were surprised, I said, hey, uh, happy lunch, we are from the Baptist Church across the street. And we wanted to just bless you today. And they're like, confounded, like that normally doesn't happen. Usually you're the guys with the signs, right? That's what they were thinking. And they said, "Why? what's this for? Why are you doing this tonight? And I just said, it's going to sound odd, but here's the deal. No matter where you spend all of eternity, I want you to know on this day uh, clearly that Jesus loves you. And that it's undeniable Jesus loves you and wants to provide for you. And wow, that just brought the walls down and started talking, yeah, wow, oh, you're not here to condemn us. And, and they just opened up and started to explain from their perspective why they did what they did and what they think about God and religion and the world and all these sort of things. And, and, and one of the ladies told me, hey, we're white witches, meaning we're doing this for good. We help people. I said, oh, that's a good one. I mean, I didn't say that, but I'm thinking, oh, that's, that's a good little spin. Um, And another one tried tried to help us find common ground. And she said these words, you know, if you think about it, and you study all the world's religions, I want you to remember this right here, here's the quote, the truth is in the overlap. And instead of going, how dare you put me in the same category as you, I immediately said, absolutely, absolutely, in this regard. So I got to qualify it. The truth is absolutely in the overlap of God's law. It's written on the hearts of men, Romans chapter 2. That's what the Apostle Paul said. You can find it throughout the entire, all the different cultures and tribes of the world. We basically agree on a fundamental uh, morality. There are certain things that nobody should do. You shouldn't go around just killing people for fun. I get it. It's not good to steal your neighbor's wife and sleep with her. There's things that you can find in each and every culture and religion or no religion. And that, but here's the problem, and this is what I said back. Here's the problem, though. Yes, the truth of God's standard is in the overlap, but what do you do when you break it? How do you atone for sin? And that's where biblical Christianity departs from every one of the world's religions, Or anti-religions. Yes, the truth is in the overlap, but that's easy. Duh! What do you do when you violate the overlap? That is what is called the atonement. Now, this morning, this morning, we get to begin five weeks of five pictures or typologies or foreshadowings. Or prophecies concerning the great atonement. But our first example happens right away in the, in the scriptures. Moses is writing. He's not even a chapter four of Genesis. And we get this magnificent view of the atonement that gives us not one perspective of that beautiful diamond. Not two perspectives, but three. Let's see if we can fit them in to our Sunday morning, all right? So we're going to read most of Genesis chapter 3. Starting in verse 1, we're going to end at verse 21, okay? We'll take some parts and pieces of, of chapter 2 as well as we unwrap this, okay? So here's what it says. Genesis 3, 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And Adam figures he's caught. He says, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman that you gave to be with me, the woman, she gave it and I ate. God looks at the woman. What is this that you have done? The woman said, uh, The serpent did it. The serpent deceived me and i ate the lord god said to the serpent no excuses allowed because you have done this cursed are you above all the livestock and above all the beasts of the field on your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat of all the days of your life i will put enmity between you and the woman between your offspring and her offspring he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel to the woman he said I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing, and pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you, in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And now at the heart, these last two verses, specifically the final one, the heart of our message today, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. then verse 21, atonement. Three perspectives on atonement in this one verse, given its context. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Anthropologists tell us that there are three basic cultures, not only around the world, but actually in every household. Okay, no one is purely... Only one of these cultures. We all have a mix of these. But there are entire nations and people groups and tribes that are primarily one or the other of these cultures. Guilt and innocence. Shame, honor. Power, fear. Each one having its own perspective on the overlap, and how to remedy the overlap, the law of God. How do you deal with sin? And I'm just going to tell you, all three are valid, and all three are biblical. Problem is, we're just stuck in one, primarily, and we like to read all of the Bible through our personal cultural lens, but if we take a moment and we see that all three of these cultures are presence, present in this one account, just opens up the facets of the diamond called atonement. We're struck with the wow of God in what he has done on our behalf. So, but in order to do that, let me take a little bit of a deeper dive into, into what each one of these cultures is, all right? So uh, again, we're a mix we're a mix. Our families have a strong suit. You were raised in a household that reflects your parents believed one or the other of these more strongly than the others. So, so you'll identify. So here's the guilt-innocence culture, okay? What is right or wrong in a legal or ethical sense, it's like the law of gravity. I don't care what you believe. I don't care what your conscience says. Right is right, wrong is wrong and there's an absolute eternal standard. If you break it, you're done. Very individualistic. It's really between you and the ultimate lawgiver. The one who ratifies the overlap. Yes, that's the law. And it's guilt guilt innocence. Either did it or you didn't. I don't care what you feel about it. It's right or wrong. Okay? Guilt, innocence, cultures focus on deductive reasoning, cause and effect, good questions and process. Issues are seen black and white. Written contracts are paramount. Communication is direct and blunt. Let me name you two nations that are famous for this. Germans and Dutch. Oh, there's more. Guilt innocence. Blunt. Like a crash of rhinos direct. Okay, they make great engineers. There's no humming and hawing. It's just a direct, and I don't care what you feel, okay? That thing that you design, that sucks. Why would you do that? I mean, just tell it like it as the engineers are going, yep, Raytheon, I'm working with those people, <laughs> you know? Um, very direct, and it's right or wrong, guilty as charged, in Noham and Han. And while this is most certainly taught in the scriptures, this is not the pre- predominant lens uh, by which the scriptures were written. Okay, that would be the second one, guilt or, or uh, uh, honor shame cultures. Okay, so if I actually said uh, Germans, Dutch. Um, And and I could identify North America, yeah, we're kind of a melting pot, we've got all of it, depending on your family of origin, that kind of thing. I would say Pacific Rim, South Pacific, Malaysia, Asia, uh, shame, honor, very, very strong. It asks the question, what is virtuous or shameful according to my community, according to my tribe, according to my people, according to my family? What do they think? What have I done to either bring them myself and them honor or to avoid shame in bringing shame to my people? And the reality is that actually most of history, most of the world, and most of the world today as upwards of 68% of the world is predominantly an honor-shame culture, according to anthropologists. Okay? Okay. Children raised in this culture, teach their they, parents teach their children to make honorable choices according to the situation that they find themselves in. Communication, interpersonal interaction, and business dealings are relationship-driven driven, with every interaction having an effect on the honor-shame status. Most of the Bible is written through an honor-shame perspective. That's, my, that's Jim Roden saying that. I believe that. And you can see those two words show up all over the scriptures. Okay, so now you know to look for that. Here's the final one fear and power. Okay, and so if if guilt and innocence is about a legal, judicial thing, and if honor and shame is communal, fear and power is primal and visceral, it's tribal. And if you want to go and find this, you go look in in tribal people, South America, Central Africa, tribes that are still living uh, hundreds of years, you know, preserved cultures, very fear, fear power oriented. And the question in, in this in this structure is, where do I fit in the power structure? How do I appease the powers? What must I do to get in good with the big dogs? How do I avoid, when it comes to religion, animistic religions? How do I avoid accidentally stepping across the track of one of the spirit gods, because then they can actually attack my children? And what do I have to do to appease them? Three cows and a goat. I, I can't afford that, but I have to do it. I have to appease the power happens in human relationships. It happens in their religion. And don't think that we don't have this as well in our own psyche and in our own culture. In fact, it was Jesus in Matthew 10, 28 that was addressing this kind of culture when he said, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. He says, fear power, but not that one. He goes on to say, rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. He's basically legitimizing And all all three of these are legitimate. All these, all three of these are biblical. All three are present in our text this morning. Three cultures, three perspectives corresponding to three consequences for violating the overlap, but one atonement. Wanna see it? Here we go. Here's the first one. He is the payment for my guilt. He is the payment for my guilt. See, there there was a very clear guilt, innocence standard set up in chapter 2, verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of of the trees of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And when God catches up to Adam, how do we know that there's a guilt, innocence thing running in the background? You see it by... The shifting of guilt. Adam, what have you done? The woman. He's caught. He knows a clear standard of guilt and innocence. And he's squirming like, oh my goodness, what do I do? And rather than just to own it, fess up, he's like, her. And she's like, she takes a lesson from the best, right? Oh, I can't give it back to him. Uh, It. And they pass the blame. Blame is is a guilt, innocence, Concept, how can I get it off of me and onto you or him or it? And so this is going on here. A clear boundary with a clear consequence had been co- uh, crossed. In, in, in verse 17 there, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. It made it sound like it's immediate. And I'll tell you this, there were kinds of immediate death. Spiritual death, separation, a uh, sense of shame running from each other. There are all kinds. But, but Adam thought for sure it was an immediate physical death. And God was catching them. We'll look at that in a moment. God catches up to them. And not only does, does he not die instantly, but that will be many years later. But Adam takes hope. That's why those last two verses are really important. He names his wife living. That's what Eve means. god clothes him how does it happen he doesn't immediately die how does it happen is called the atonement the at one and in verse 21 it's it's there it's implicitly in the text i do know there's some bible scholars that go i ah, don't run down that trail but most most Bible scholars and pastors and theologians throughout the centuries would go, bam, there it is, the atonement. Because the loophole was this something has to die. And Adam will die, but it doesn't have to be him immediately right now. So instead, God kills some animals. In the making of those skins, someone or something had to shed its blood. And in fact, Hebrews twenty nine twenty nine is the New Testament where the writer of Hebrews says, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. That is directly tied to 2.17. In the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Sin exacts an exact price tag. Guilt or innocence. Guilty, here's the price tag. Someone or something must shed its blood. But the loophole is, it doesn't have to be you right now. Matthew Henry was a Puritan pastor in, wow, devotional commentaries, and he runs down all kinds of trails and thoughts, and they didn't have TV this guy was, he goes, he's brilliant in volumes. And, and the Puritans did that, old theologians. I mean, they just wrote volumes. Pretty amazing. But I love what Matthew Henry said of this instance. And, and I, I'm with him on this. He says it is supposed that they, being the animals that God killed, were slain not for food, but for sacrifice. To typify the great sacrifice, which in the latter end of the world should be offered once for all. Thus, the first thing that died was a sacrifice, or a Christ in figure. Who is therefore said to be the lamb slain from the foundation of the world? And so we have a picture in verse 21 of the atonement where God says, Hey, this is for your, your coverings. But in so doing, I'm shedding blood, making a temporary covering for your guilt. When we get forward into Leviticus, and, and actually even earlier, um, the patriarchs do sacrifices, and over and over and over again in the Old Testament is you have this idea that, that the burning of animal flesh is a soothing aroma in the nostrils of God. How's it a soothing aroma? Because in smelling the sacrifice, God, who is outside of time, is reminded of his son being the ultimate sacrifice future. Giving him an ability to calm down his offendedness. Providing a temporary covering for those Old Testament individuals like Adam and Eve. Knowing one day I'm going to satisfy that this aroma is reminding me of the ultimate sacrifice that will one day come. And so God's anger is assuaged. That the sacrifice makes propitiation the appeasement of wrath. And God accepts that as a temporary covering. Here's the question. Have you received Jesus Because he's the permanent covering. This is only the first glimpse of the Messiah to come. I don't want to take all the great texts, and so what I'll do is I'll I'll share this and won't go too deep because I have a feeling this might come up a couple times. But in Romans 3.21, it's very, very guilt-innocence-driven. Verse 21 through 26, very powerful text in Paul's letter to the Roman Christians that has to do with this temporary covering now becoming permanent in Jesus. And it's for every person here who will put their faith in Jesus. Not good works, not some other religion, or just getting by, or your own goodness, or self-righteousness, whatever. You trust in Jesus. This is for you. Paul says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Keeping religious codes cannot fix the violation of the overlap. You should have kept the overlap. You didn't. Now what do you do? Most religions say, try harder. Make up for it by doing more good. Sorry, one imperfection makes something imperfect. So we need a substitute. Apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, there's no distinction for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Whether you are a religious ceremony-keeping Jew or just a crazy pagan Gentile, no difference. You all agree on the overlap. You think you could keep it, and here's all the rules. You do it by nature. Maybe you're even a little bit better than them. That's actually Romans 2. But in Romans 3, it's like, you're all under the same penalty. We've all violated the overlap. And it says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but are justified. Whoa, these are so many big words in here that are so wrapped up in atonement, at one And I'm not going to go into them, but justified. Are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption. That's another pregnant word. Redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood. To be received by faith. Isn't that beautiful? This was to show God's righteousness because in divine forbearance, now we're talking about Adam and we're talking about Abraham and we're talking about the old covenant Jews that that by faith honored the Lord. By divine forbearance forbearance he passed over there was a temporary covering a soothing aroma that calmed his spirit and he looked forward to the final once for all sacrifice divine forbearance he passed over former sins it was to show his righteousness at the present time And this is powerful the atonement this is that god is both the just he is holy he's the one who who actually encoded The overlap, guilt and innocence. He is the holy one, the the, the just one. But watch this, this is so powerful. He's also the justifier. This is our our bottom line. Did I give you the bottom line yet? Oh, go back to the bottom line. It's in my my notes and I just just got got too excited about the atonement. Here's the story of of Genesis 321. In the history of the universe but I'm gonna do it in past tense as if it was for Adam and Eve. In love, the offended moved toward the offender. Addressing the offense and its consequences in order to restore the relationship. The offended one, the one that was violated is the one that steps forth and says, and I'll pay the difference. So that we can have at one mint. Pew! If that doesn't move you, your wood's wet. You're stuck. Should have said, if that doesn't light your fire, your wood's wet. What am I thinking? But really, this is, this is powerful stuff. That God would be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You ever wonder where you stand in relationship to Jesus? of your past that are secret nobody knows so there's no shame because that's a different topic but there is guilt you look around and you go yeah i know he did bad stuff she did bad stuff but they're good people and god can forgive them i don't know if he can forgive me and the guilt remains the sense of guilt remains you ever feel like that you ever wonder if God's done with you? You ever wonder if God's sort of mad at you? You ever wonder if you didn't, you didn't try hard enough? You ever wonder if you didn't read the Bible enough? You didn't, you didn't witness enough? You didn't pray enough? And so God's, you know, cooled off toward you. You ever feel that? And it affects how you see yourself and how you live your life, right? You go, well, I guess I'm screwed. Might as well just do what I do. Do you understand in at the atonement that God is not angry at you? God is not cooled in his affections toward you. God has nothing that he's hung up about over you. That he has provided the payment for your guilt. Romans eight thirty one 31-35, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us, Freely, how shall he also not with him give us all things? Who shall bring a charge? That's legal language. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. That's legal language, guilt and innocence. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of the of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? That's like a a uh, an attorney defending you at all times at the right hand of the father who shall separate us from the love of christ wow that's the the at one it's beautiful guilt innocence well here's the second one the second one is he is the covering for my shame the covering for my shame so you see whereas guilt is an issue of absolute right and wrong and an overlap and an offense between an individual and the Almighty. Shame is a matter of the community. And it can be good or bad. It can have emotions attached to it. Um, it could be people trying to shame you or it could be you shaming yourself. It can also be the community honoring you or you trying to honor yourself. Boy, that's awkward. Everyone else can see it. Awkward. Look what I did. Oh, Facebook, oh my goodness. Awkward. Is it starting to get to you? I mean, what well, we've had Facebook for what, 20 years, 15? Does, does it dawn on you like, well, they're all just bragging about themselves. I, I don't think I should keep posting anymore. I did it too. It starts to get really awkward trying to honor yourself. See, we are, we are a shame honor culture too. Some of y- you more than others but we have it all over us as well. Looking to say, look, I proved myself. I did it. Look at me. Please notice and honor me. And you have that here in the text, specifically the shame. This is where we see that immediately, immediately when when sinning, when violating the overlap, as it were, they go from... Uh, Genesis 2.25, the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed, there's the language, there's actually the word, to Genesis 3.7. Then the eyes of them were both opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin cloths. This is not a guilt issue, this is a shame issue. Being exposed as a sinner in the midst of their community, and their only community was, was him and her. It was their marriage. And, and you think shame, honor happens in the marriage? Absolutely. We're embarrassed and then we do it to each other. Well, that was a dumb way to feel, says the husband who doesn't deserve her. Ooh, you did what? Oh, that's gonna make me wanna confess it. I, I, we want to put on fig leaves because we're embarrassed. We know our sin, It's shameful. We were made for honor, but sin brings disregard, disrespect, dishonor, and shame. And so you see this in their fig leaves. Can I tell you that God is not only the one who provided payment for our guilt, he's also the one that covers our shame. He is the covering for my shame. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and... Clothed them. Those of us who have put our faith in Jesus, there's no question in your mind, oh yeah, it's not just a guess, it's absolute. I, I am fully, fully convinced that Jesus died for my sins and rose, rose again on the third day. You know what the scripture says about that? Paul says this in his letter to the Galatians, Galatians 3.27, for as many of you were baptized into Christ, that's putting your faith in Jesus, have put on Christ. Did you get the metaphor? Something else is now covering you. His name is Christ. The fulfillment of Genesis 3:21 and the, the clothing of the skins of the animals, covering our shame. God' saying, those, those leaves are not enough. They don't even cover you. They rip, they wear out every other day. There's probably a stack of dead leaves in the corner. Who's going to do the laundry? Just burn it. And yet God says, here, try these. Something had to die for this as well. Cover yourself up. I didn't, I didn't mean for you to have to wear clothes, but from now on, let me be your covering. Everyone, just, I mean, look what you're wearing today. I, every time you put on clothes, you should be reminded, he is the covering for my shame. Where does this become practical in our lives? Is this dancing for the man, proving yourself, making sure you get noticed, making sure that you don't screw up in front of the the burning eyes of judgment, that your motive in life is, how do I look? How does this picture, how does this make me me look? Do I look fat? Uh, Yeah, no, thank you, Jake. Thank you. I'm trying, yeah. Is this slimming? Listen, can I tell you? I don't care who you are, if you're on the stage in front of this many people, every band member, every teacher, every preacher, every person that actually read up here, there's a there's a there's a motive there, dear God, let me not be put to shame. I don't want to screw up in front of people. That's a real thing. It's not a bad thing, but listen, here's the deal. When you are convinced of Jesus as your righteousness and your covering. That he's clothing you. He is your honor. You got nothing to prove and nothing to lose. You can step up and you can let her rip because you don't have to prove yourself to anyone. You're just living for the audience of one. This is the freedom that comes from the covering in Jesus. You have put on Christ. This is a fulfillment of Isaiah 61. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress. Brad, you got to wear a headdress in your wedding. It's right there in the Bible. Like a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. Wow. He covers us. And here's the promise for you. Are, you. are you covered? Do you want to be covered? Here's the promise. Shows up once in the Old Testament, three times in the New Testament, twice in Romans, once in First Peter, for it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in, in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Mic drop. Boom. I don't have to prove anything. It's exhausting. Been doing it all my my life. Running from shame, pursuing honor. God's the one that's gonna give us honor. He already has. Dressing us in his righteousness. Here's the final one. Finally, the atonement means not only that he's my payment for guilt or that he's my cover for my shame, he is the transformation of my fear. The transformation of my fear. God said to Adam in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And now here comes God. And what do they do? Run! Hide! And he caught us. What do they do when they know there's a, there's a law that was broken and that there's a penalty to be paid. And they're running for the hills. Because they know they don't want to die. Fear of punishment is why they ran and hid. But I want you to notice, it was God who, who pursued them. And he did not pursue them in anger. They're not even forgiven or covered yet. And yet God is in pursuit. Not in anger, but in love. God is the one who provides for them. Matthew, Henry, again, he says this. We have here a further instance of God's care concerning our first parents, notwithstanding their sin. He deals with their sin, is what he's saying. Though he corrects his disobedient children and puts them under the marks of displeasure, yet he does not disinherit them. But like a tender father provides the herb of the field for their food and coats of skins for their clothing, and he says... If the Lord had been pleased to kill them, he would not have done this for them. And guess what? Adam got it. And that is why in verse 20, he goes, Hey, woman, because that's the first name he gave her. This is the second name, and it's her personal name. He calls her Living. We're not going to die right away, hon. And did you hear in the curses? We're gonna have seed. And the seed's gonna crush the head of the serpent. And there's only one way we get that seed and that's if we live and that's, that's if we have babies. And so I'm gonna name you in faith. We don't have any babies yet. Your name's Eve. We don't have to run anymore. God's not angry anymore. Something died. And someone will die. So that there could be the propitiation, the appeasement of his anger because we have violated the overlap. Wow. This is why Paul could tell Timothy, for God gave us not a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Our fear is legitimate. The scripture says that the, the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The scripture says that, that by in, in, uh, atonement is provided for iniquity and by the fear of the Lord, one departs from iniquity. It's actually a great deterrent to move away from sin. And so it's true, but here's the beauty of one who knows the goodness of the Lord is that fear is transformed into love. That the thinkable, that you needed to be scared to avoid, it's unthinkable, now becomes unthinkable. How in the world could I bruise the heart of my Lord and Savior? How could I do such a thing? It's what we see in Joseph when he's running from Potiphar's wife. How could I do such a thing? How could I sin against my master and my God? It becomes unthinkable. And fear is converted to love in the atonement. Michael Card, wonderful Christian artist, musician. Deeply, profoundly theological in his song Jubilee. Uh, I think off his album, The Way of Wisdom. This this was going through my my ears. I haven't heard the song for 20 years. And and to hear these words, because this is what happened. To be so completely guilty and given over to despair. To look into your judge's face and see a savior there. Jubilee. Debts forgiven, slaves go free. Jesus is our jubilee. Jubilee. And our fear of retribution and punishment is transformed into love. I'm saying, How could I ever sin against such a beautiful heart? How does this impact our lives? Quickly. If you have faith in Jesus today, you're at peace with God, He's provided the payment for your guilt. Secondly, if you are in Christ today, you don't have to dance for the man. You don't have to prove yourself. You do not have to honor yourself. You could cancel your Facebook account today. Thirdly, you no longer have to run away from God. You actually get to run toward him as a loving savior. Blood for guilt, skin for shame, and love for fear. Romans 4, 7-8, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. In love, the offended has moved toward us, the offenders. In love, he, the offended, has addressed our offenses and their consequences And in love, the offended has made a means by which he can restore this relationship. What a great atonement. Amen? Father, thank you so much for your great love. The story in this, because this is just the first. This is just the first, and it shows up again and again and again and again and again. Your relentless, relentless, unmitigated, unending, unyielding commitment to pursue the hearts of rebels sinners. In love, you pursue us and provide for us. In love, you cover us so that we could live at one. Thank you, Lord. God, remind us and help us to live in the, in the reality, the truth, the freedom, the joy that this brings. Set us free today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We'd love to have you join us in person on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You can find out more about us at journeyefc.org.